Welcome to Sports, Clips, and Politics with your host, Ben Husson, and me, Sean Hannah. Welcome to episode 126 of nice. Sports, Clicks, and Politics. A little uh, gap between 125 and 126, but here we are nonetheless. I am Sean Hannon, joined as always by the charming and wonderful Mr. Ben Husong. Mr. Husong, how was your last five weeks? <laughs> <laughs> do you have enough to fill a show with your... Uh... I probably do if I, if I sat down and thought about everything that's gone on in the last five weeks. No, it's been good. Good. Yeah, how about you? How was, how was the, the sunny south? Uh, I mean, it's South Florida in February. It's hard for me to complain about too much. I won't talk too much because I know that we did not have the same kind of weather that I had down there up here. So I'm not going to try not. to rub it in anybody's face. Yeah, winter came back hard. We, yeah. we I mean, it's still here. Winter. Yeah, we didn't have a bad winter until March. Yeah, and we got another one coming tonight. Yeah, a couple feet. Yeah, what Why the hell? Here? I, should, I don't know. Right? Feb- it is so beautiful in South Florida. So shout out to all the people. Uh, ate a lot of Mexican, a lot of tacos down there. Nice. I haven't yet jumped into the Peruvian restaurants. Lots of Peruvian restaurants down there. They look really good. I have not been able to, uh, we never, two months, two uh, two years, I guess, last month for a year, or last year for a month, and then this year for a month. Both times we were told we should try these Peruvian places. We just never made a habit to do it. But I do want to do it. I'm not sure. I'm just a slacker. You coward. But tacos were excellent. Go eat some Peruvian food. Yeah. It was good. I mean, you know, we brought the dog, so we had to nice. go to the vet twice for eat one eat one each for the dogs. Both really? of them, yeah, that was fun. I mean, not expected on a vacation. Yes. I mean, you bring the dogs for a month. I mean, there's always a chance. Sure. Both dogs, two separate eye issues, both unrelated, but they're a week good apart. But they're good. Uh, yeah, they're good. They're both healthy. They're uh, good. We had to wrap the wrap the male the barker with the cone, so that was fun. He must have loved that. Uh, no, he did not. Not a fan. No. It was, it's all bloody now on the inside of it, so he cut open his eye and then wouldn't leave it alone, so he kept scratching it. I get it. Welcome to Florida. That's it. But other than that, Florida was great. Um, I mean, I know we tried to do a show that was uh, uh, unsuccessful, let's just call it. Issues. Yeah, I haven't been able to figure that out yet, so my apologies to all the uh, folks playing at home on the uh, the home version during the uh, vacation week. Very, very, uh, I have to figure that out. Yes. I, I don't think it's even a hard fix. I just think I just... I just need to push buttons and see what happens. Maybe you're overthinking it. There's a simple solution. Probably am. So, well, on that note, before we get into some of the uh, craziness that we have on the slate today, um, I would like to remind everybody to please leave a, uh, well, you can't subscribe to the channel today on YouTube because I don't know if you guys know, we are not on YouTube today. So if you're looking for us there, you're not finding us. You're not hearing me either because you're not there. We're not there. So. My bad. We're on Rumble. Um, Episode 52, way back, uh, I guess. A year 70 ago. plus weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> was taken down for medical misinformation by YouTube. And therefore we have a new strike on our channel and we're unable to go live for you folks today. So hopefully you've all been able to migrate over here onto rumble. Um, YouTube sucks. It's, I don't so, know, it's, it's I mean, so stupid. So it was, uh, it was the Fauci email uh, episode. So, you know, I'm sure How we, dare talk, we report I know, on that craziness, but um so anyway, leave us a like on Rumble, share the video, uh, share the channel. Uh, you can share the channel on YouTube still, but you just won't be able to find us today. Uh, we're going to have to figure something else. I don't know. We have to figure out some other streaming method. We'll keep going with YouTube as long as they let us, but I have to figure out this Twitter thing. We should start streaming on Twitter. I looked at it briefly today, but I didn't want to get into that. I had a bunch of other stuff trying to reset the studio. So 
Uh, you might notice we have a little bit of different graphics because I'm going to call this season four, Ben. <laughs> I like that you just randomly yeah. start seasons. As soon as I get the ambition to make new graphics, we get a new season. All right. <laughs> so season four. Good. Episode 126. Nice. We're on a roll. Um, I don't know. You want to get into some sports? Sure. We have some local, local sports news. to cover. Yeah, I know. Um, we got some more uh, follow-up news to go along with it today, too, because, um, you know, the story just won't die here uh, locally anyway. But um, Coach Jim Beheim is no longer the coach. Uh, he has, uh, I don't know if retired, stepped down, fired, resigned, what the actual uh, definitive and uh, official term was used uh, during the uh, uh, replacement of Coach Beheim with uh, now Coach Red Autry, Adrian Autry, former uh, Syracuse basketball player. Side note. I once was at Pittsburgh basketball camp. Uh, this is back in, I guess, 1988 or 89. And Autry was playing for Talentine. I think it was Talentine uh, High School. I'm pulling this out of my ass right now because I'm just remembering it. Sure. Fly. But the coach of Talentine or one of the coaches for Talentine told me that Red Autry was coming to Syracuse because he, he knew I was from Syracuse. And we were just talking about high school basketball. And I was like, oh, is this guy supposed to come? Because he was a high-rated to recruit. And I was really into high school basketball at that time because of SU. And he was like, yeah, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, then when he came and he signed, I was like, I already knew this. I had inside information. Um, and now he is the coach. So, yeah. It's a good that's, anecdote. That's 25-plus years ago. About 30 years ago, I guess. 40. I mean, I yeah, don't it's even know. like 35. Yeah. It's easy for me to do that math because I was born in 84 and yeah. I am therefore now 38. Yeah, because I was a junior. I was between my junior and senior in high school. So it's been 88, 89-ish. I was almost ready to start kindergarten. You're a man. <laughs> but anyway, Coach Beheim is out. New era at SU basketball, 47 years. Um, I have long been, and I don't know if I have your, uh, I don't know if I've ever gotten your take on Coach Beheim, but I have long been a, He's done enough to he gets to leave when he wants to leave kind of guy. Um, I know that's not a popular opinion the last, the last nine years since he's been losing, but um, I feel like the first 30 whatever years were good enough where he's like, okay, he just gets to pick his exit. He gets to do it how he wants to. Um, I knew it was – so let's back up a little bit. We know that his kids played there. I had assumed that, okay – when his when he realized his kids were going to be good enough to play Division One and that they might come to Syracuse, that he was going to like, all right, I'm going to stick around for this. And I don't blame him for that. I mean, it was kind of cool to coach your kid and whatever, but he should have kind of walked out with those kids and just been last year. I could see how he didn't want us all to think that he was just coaching because of his kids and was like, oh, I'm going to stick around, you know, after that and whatever. But like, he should have just went out with the kids, and that would have been there would have been none of this craziness that happened uh, the last few months here at, at within the program about whether or not he was coming and going. Um, but I don't know what, what are your initial or just your general uh, coach Beheim thoughts? And then uh, follow that up about what do you think, how it un uh, transpired at the end there? All right. Um, so I think Jim Beheim earned a more leeway than your average coach about going out on your terms. However, I do think that by this point he had abused that, leeway to the point that it was like look enough's enough it's still a division one program they still have a future after you you've been here for 40 plus years and you did a great job for the program and for that I think letting you hang on for a decade of mediocrity allowing your you to recruit your sons who look his sons weren't bad all right buddy Beheim, very good shooter I mean he's in the NBA it yeah barely barely but 
how many teams is he a four-year starter for as a D1 school? Oh, very few. Not, yeah, not too many are going to take him and be like, okay, so if you want to have a program that is a top rank, he ain't starting for Duke for four years. It's not happening. I don't think there's too many too many teams that we like to think Syracuse is, and maybe they're not that anymore. Maybe we should accept that. I don't know. But if you still want to view Syracuse University as a premier men's basketball pro- program, Buddy Bayheim, short of that last name, is not a four-year starter at your university. Yeah, uh, maybe you player. maybe you would agree with this. If he was a third or fourth option on one of those teams in the '90s, he would have been great, right? Awesome. Like he would have been a perfect complement to, right. to those uh, superstar players. But yeah, go ahead. But instead, he's your in he's your everyday starter, and it was just wow. What and a, your go-to guy almost right, and that's that means you have a cap on your program. So. Again, I got no problem with Buddy Beheim coming here, but the idea that he took a roster spot from somebody else that arguably should have been a more talented player starting as the as the three guard, uh, that small forward, whatever you want to say, that that didn't sit well with me. But okay, coach, you earned it. You've done all everything this program's asked. You've done a great job. I got it. And then Jimmy Beheim came on. And it was like, all right, fine, to have your year, whatever. You earned it. And then to come back and now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition this into the second part of your question. I have heard two competing theories on what went down. Okay. All right, so the first one was Beheim at the beginning of the year, was pretty sure this was going to be his last year. Okay. Told, the, told the school, yeah, this is it, I'm done. And if you recall, in the fall, God, I'm good, uh, they were very optimistic about where this team was heading. Like, he was talking deep into the NCAA tournament. I believe the words Elite Eight were used like, he was very convinced this was a good team. Needless to say, that did not quite pan out this season, as uh, they might make the NIT, and if they make the NIT, it will only be because Jim Beheim announced his retirement because they don't deserve to be in the NIT either. Like, they are, they should be done. Um, and so at that point, Beheim, despite having said, I'm, I'll be done, didn't want to go out like that at the end. He wanted one more season so that he could actually go out with a with a tournament bid but he never wanted the farewell tour he didn't want the Mike Krzyzewski farewell thing and so then he came back to the school and was like hey give me one more and they basically were like no you said it we got Autry all ready to go Autry's getting ready to go look somewhere else if you if you stay one more we don't want to lose him he's our next guy so that's theory number one okay all right theory number two is Beheim was also ready to go this year but Beheim's pick for his successor was not Red Autry. It okay. was Jerry McNamara. And he wanted Jerry McNamara to take over, but the school wanted Autry to take over. And so they were butting heads, and that's why Jim Beheim's been a little bit abrasive on this mini farewell tour is because they're not leaving on the best of terms as Jim Beheim wanted to be able to name his own successor. The university disagreed, and that's what it is. How much truth is there to either one of these? I don't know. But it's a small town. You talk to people who know people, and there's probably at least some nugget of truth to the competing theories. Doesn't mean either one's absolutely true or false, but it's what I've heard. So I get out of the car at the Honda Classic in Florida, and we drove, so we had our New York plates there. Literally five seconds after I got out of the car, you from Syracuse? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm from Rochester. Do you think Bayheim should be gone? And I'm like... I give him basically the same story that I just kind of started the story with. I'm like, I've long been a Bayham gets to leave when he wants to leave. Right. I do think it's time. Like, I'm not going to tell him he should go, but if he asked me, I'd be like, I think you should go. Like, I just think it's time. But apparently this dude was from Rochester and played basketball in high school with Bayham. And he was like, he's always been a curmudgeon. And like, this is not nude or whatever. But anyway, it's interesting that um, that was still going. I mean, the talk was still 
uh, lively there, even all the way down in Florida from some uh, transplanted New Yorkers. But nothing wrong with it. Yeah, no. But um, then we had this little. I mean, anything more on the actual? Like, I, I mean, I, we'll see how Red turns out as a coach. Like, sure. I'm, I'm not sure about his uh, recruiting acumen, and you know, I know Hopkins was a great recruiter and. That he kind of got credit for being the, the recruiter, so I, you know who knows. You know, I'm not in those parents' rooms and the kids' rooms and what's 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 being transpired and told and promised with those kids. But I'm not on the inside, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I, here's what it looks like from the outside: Bam's checked out. He's just he's not hungry like he once was. He's been doing this for so long that he's not hitting it like he used to. He's not coaching like he used to. He's sort of on the. He's coasting a little bit, and that's fine. Like you said, you earned it. You you put in the time, you put in the work, but at some point it's, yeah, no, I'm glad that he's walking away because I don't see, without putting in the work, because Division One basketball is hard and the new rules only make it harder. You, you're not getting by on a legacy. Being in the ACC makes it harder, yeah. not easier. Yeah, and recruiting got harder because now you only get kids for maybe one year, right. maybe not even a full year, right? So you, you, you're not you're almost never getting them for four years unless they have your last name, but you're... <laughs> You're not getting the kids. So you have to make your recruiting process has to be geared up to be like a yearly. I mean, you're recruiting every year, but sometimes you're like, okay, well, back in the nineties, I have, I know I got this guy for three years. Yeah, at least, Lawrence at least, Bolton, he's right, right, up. right. He's coming back. These, all these guys are coming back. Right. So that is gone. That era of college basketball is long gone. Anybody who's worth their salt is playing in the NBA or playing pro someplace else mm-hmm. um, right out of high school. So they're not. They're, they're, the college – I mean, I think the college basketball product is terrible, to be honest with you right now. It like, is I mean, bad right now. I, I just think there's a talent gap, and a lot of the talent just went pro because they could, and that kind of, you know. So, it, there's, I got to go drop this point because I was yeah. watching the SU game against Wake Forest, and I'm watching – and at the end of the game, all right, you're in the ACC tournament. Now, here's the reality. They had no chance at winning the ACC tournament no matter what. But, like, all right, look, go win a game. And – I was watching Wake Forest up by 12 or 14 just continue to jack threes. And I'm going, where's the coaching? Like, you don't need that. You have such a comfortable lead that you should be working the shot. If you get one wide open, fine. But you just took six possessions in a row where you took a three-pointer. like, And you missed all six. You let them come back because they you didn't need to do that. You should have been... You should have traded twos for threes and twos the entire way. Pass the ball around. You know you could beat the zone down low. And you could have had a comfortable lead all the way through, but you screwed it up. SU comes back. Wake Forest ties it up. 20 seconds to go. Call timeout. No shot clock. This is what I mean about where where is the coaching at right now? How does it that your senior leader, captain, whomever, and Joe Girard had some somehow, whether it was the design play or whether it fell apart and he just decided he was going to do it, how in the world does that guy shoot? a 19-foot contested fadeaway with seven seconds to go. The idiocy of that decision was mind-blowing. You shoot that shot with two seconds to go, okay. Yeah, I I mean, You take a layup with 18 seconds, okay, you got the points. I get it. But you give them a very low percentage shot with a hand in your face, Long rebound with seven seconds to go. They had time to come down, pass, pass, and take a wide open three. Like, how in the world, who has been coaching this kid for his entire life that said, here's the situation. If you don't have an absolutely clean look at the basket, just don't shoot it until there's under five seconds, okay? 
I'll yell out when we're under five, and then you'll know. Otherwise, don't put that shot up because all they can only end badly. Yeah. If we just don't shoot and we go to overtime, that's okay. Yeah. But we can't not score and then give them a chance to come down with time, with time running out. Yeah, and, that, and that's where I do think that coaches matter way more. I'd say way more. They, they matter differently in college like because you have to manage emotions. There are a bunch of kids and – you know, that guy's probably playing in his last game, Gerard, that is, and he was like, I'm going to I'm gonna shoot the sh- shot, whatever. But you, to your point, I, somebody has to get in his ear and be like, hey, you're, you're option one, but, like, everybody else knows you're option one, too, probably. Hey, if if this turns out bad, here's option two. And that should have been, dr- you know, drilled into to, to his head. You know, whether or not, you know, I can't imagine Bayham was just like, all right, go win it, Joe. You know, like, whatever. Right. I hope not. <laughs> but bad, um... And then when you start, when you're not winning, every everything gets magnified. So anything that's, uh, you know, any kind of coaching glitch or or program or, or kid doesn't come here, like everything gets magnified yeah. because of whatever, whatever, whatever. And then speaking of magnification of the whole situation, we get local radio talk show host Brent Axe, who I'm not even really a fan of, find myself waking up this morning defending this guy because he's fired because he was critical of Bayheim and the program for the last six months. Right. So like turns out that uh, the uh, president of Galaxy Media Partners, which is a local conglomerate of radio channels here, owns ESPN radio, uh, is friends with Jim Beheim and uh, quote unquote in the article bleeds orange and felt that uh, Brent Axe's coverage was too negative and therefore fired him. It's hilarious. It's ridiculous. Uh, Not for nothing. I, the quote I saw in the article was, I, I wish he would have covered the orange with the same affection that he used to cover the Bills. I saw that. Okay, so here's the thing. Over the last five years, the Bills have been good. The Bills have been a playoff team. They've been running deep. Yes, their seasons have ended in a disappointing fashion, but overall, you've liked the things they did in the offseason. I didn't love the that they didn't fire their OC, but okay, fine. The talent is there. The coaching is there. You're getting close to the Super Bowl, and now you're starting to hit that crest. There was nothing to complain about from 20 years of awful football into consistent division-winning playoff team. And then now it's, all right, well, look, now you got to take the next step or else you're going to lose everybody. So you're you're running out of goodwill right about now. How critical do you want the guy to be of Buffalo Bills? I mean, truly, yeah. how critical could you be of that team in the last five years? Well, it sounds like he doesn't even want to be critical at all. That's my whole point. It's this like is he, the flip side. What has there been... To, to be positive about for Syracuse Orange basketball in the last five or six years. Because I could say that if I was listening to somebody who was just, you know, fluffing up Bayheim and the program all the time, I'd be like, you're not serious person, right? Like right. it's that, So to, I think, both of our points, like he had the right to be critical of the program. The program had holes, right? So like it had warts. Like point out pointing out the warts doesn't make you, you know, some kind of uh, uh, pariah where you get you, you lose your job. Now, it turns out that Jim Bayheim might have a job coming up at Galaxy Media Partners uh, doing some radio broadcasting. I'm guessing the coach probably didn't want to pass Mr. Brent Axe in the hallways of that uh, studio and probably uh, mentioned that to his good buddy Ed Levine, or Ed Levine, whatever Ed his Levine. name is. And uh, here we have it. I mean, wow. this is this is seemingly, this is just, you know, sour grapes. And I, for me to not think that Bayheim had at least a mention in this discussion would be foolish for me. So like, I'm sure that Levine and Beheim talked about Brent Axe more than once. And, um, I don't know. I find it a little bit suspicious. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, it's not even suspicious. It's blatant. So it's clearly a lie. If he says that Beheim or the addition of Beheim to the, you know, the broadcast schedules 
was unrelated to the firing of Brennax. That's a lie. So who knows? Like I said, I'm not, I won't be like banging down the doors to find out where Brennax is broadcasting next, but I feel like it's Bush League that he got fired because, you know, yeah, the president of their channels is, a, is an Orange fan and was, you know, upset that he was crit- critical of the program is mind-boggling stupid. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm not familiar with Brent Axe either. I think I've read one or two of his columns and I always found him to be like, eh, no. Yeah, he's all right. Whatever. He's Fine. a local guy, right? He's a good local guy, come, knows the team well. Is right. obviously He's been very, doing it for 20 years. Right. And so the idea that you just fired him over that, and again, my counter argument would be, what has there been in the last particularly two seasons that you'd like him to be flattering about? This season was a monumental disappointment. They had such high expectations, and this team never developed. They never evolved. They never got anywhere. They just, they hit mediocrity and were like, okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, I mean, you know, they tried to have some kumbaya when they introduced Autry as the new coach, and they invited Beheim there, and, you know, everybody seemed to be on, uh, you know, everybody had seemed to, I don't know, at least smooth over any kind of, uh, problems that we're having amongst each other at least for an hour or whatever um and then this thing came out which is just again just stupid this came out i think they they announced his firing yesterday and today here we are today so who knows like i said i you know i'll look forward to the program like i'm i don't watch as much college basketball anymore because i watch so much nba and again i feel like the 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 just the difference in talent is so i can't it, it's so bad in the college but anyway so Hopefully this all works out for SU. Like, I mean, I'll root for Coach Autry to, to be good. I mean, he's been with the program, again, since the 90s. I mean, apparently he left the program, became a like a UPS driver and for a while, and then here he is coaching the SU game. So I'm not sure. Like I said, you know, there's a there's going to be a faction of the SU crowd, uh, the fan base here, that will never be or won't be completely satisfied with the passing of the torch within the program, kind of like within the coaching ranks of Bayheim. They kind of wanted a fresh start, a clean start. You know, I saw Patino's name thrown out there a bunch of times. I've always thought the, uh, I don't know if the guy's still there anymore, but uh, who's the uh, coach of, used to be the coach of Villanova. Is he still there? Jay Wright? Oh, I think so. He would have been my, he's my, he's always been my, like if I could get a guy, that would be the guy. That's your guy. So, anyway, not, not like, not going to happen in uh, the next season, but uh, hopefully Autry, uh, can get some players in here, um, you know, work that transfer protocol and get some uh, recruits and turn the program around because, you know, it has a, you know, really a legendary history. Just the last, you know, decade or so has been mediocre at best. So, yeah. all right, let's switch uh, gears a little bit and go to, uh, let's see here. What are we going to do this? Let's do this. Here we are. Our boy Elon Musk. Have you heard this? Elon Musk is building his own city. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> so just outside of Austin, let's see if they have this article. Um, um, Elon Musk is reportedly working on constructing the city of Starbase, Texas. So he's going to take over a, a, a city, incorporate it as Starbase, and... Uh, Outfit it with uh, homes and uh, places to live for his uh, SpaceX and boring companies. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you think he'll run for mayor? Of space? Of uh, Starbase? Starbase? That'd be great. That'd be kind of funny, actually. Maybe his kid can run for mayor. There you go. The one that's all symbols? He's like, he's a a retired alphabet letter. (laughs) That's what he is. That kid's just begging for a nickname. It's the AE, whatever that letter used to be, actual real... 
I get it. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I would I would love to visit that city. Yeah, I I think it would be fun. I, I mean, I I'm guessing it would be uh, very high tech. Uh, yeah. Very. Uh, I don't know. Listen, I feel like Elon Musk is like the best rich dude ever because he just does the most random off the wall stuff. Where you're like, he just bought Twitter. Why? Like, I don't know. Why not? All right, fair enough. He's gonna start a city. Like this guy is just so random that I love it. And, you know, he's like the only one whose name has not shown up on Jeffrey Epstein's flight log. So that's a win for me, too. He's taking over Boca Chica. Love that place. Is that pretty girl? Boca Chica? Chica's definitely girl. I just don't know what yeah, Boca. Boca is not I thought, pretty. I don't, Bonita is pretty. Oh, yeah. I don't know what Boca is. It's probably Boca Raton. Boca, probably, yeah. probably vulgar. No, it's not vulgar. Anyway, I figured I would bring that to everybody's attention that Elon Musk is deciding to... Uh, I don't know, take on civil engineering. I mean in his world of uh other hobbies. I so. got I got faith that he might just do a good job. I'll be the first one to tell you. Yeah, no, it'll be fun. So <clears throat> I don't know. I thought that we should bring that to everybody's attention since we cover so much uh Elon Musk here, but another thing we cover a lot of mouth. Pretty mouth. According to according to the Google Spanish to English translation. Well, Chica's girl. So oh, God. Boca Spanish to English is saying that it means mouth. Hmm. Well, not shocking, I guess. Let's switch gears again to another uh, person. Small mouth. Not necessarily girl mouth. Okay, so Chica is... Oh, that's weird. I mean, Chica's definitely girl. I, as far like as Chico I do. Boy. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't, I don't, I'm not... You know, my eighth grade Spanish is not held up. So, here I am. We're Googling Boca Chica. TripAdvisor says Boca Chica means little mouth, but that's not accurate. Yeah, I I concur. Uh, all right, anyways, let's move on. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. So we have uh, plenty of uh, discussion here about one Mr. Jeffrey Epstein. Um, it turns out the client list might be on our doorstep, Mr. Hughesong. Now, this came out while I was in Florida, but I we should clearly bring this back uh, to everybody's attention here, and it hasn't happened yet. So the infamous Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein client list will be made public. Are we, uh, I know I've talked about this literally for two years straight, and we still have no names other than my list that I keep publishing myself. Um, I'm assuming we are going to get names since they keep telling us this. Um, but what happened in the aftermath was kind of funny. So they tell us we're going to get this list and, you know, did you see the, uh, the uh, Jimmy Kimmel? So Jimmy Kimmel makes a joke about Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Saying that it's weird that uh, Aaron Rodgers Aaron Rogers is so concerned about the uh, client list. Kind of a sports story going back to sports. Packers David Bakhtiari defends teammate Aaron Rodgers by slamming Jimmy Kimmel as being on Epstein's client list. So basically, uh, t tweeted out uh, to Jimmy Kimmel uh, that, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, here it is, tell me you're on Jeffrey Epstein's client list without telling me you're on Jeffrey Epstein's client list. And this is, he basically screenshot or uh, quote tweeted Jimmy Kimmel's opening, basically saying, you know, Aaron Rodgers was concerned about this client list. People should be concerned about the client list. Uh, Even if you're not concerned, you should want it. Yeah, no, like people should be held accountable. So I'm glad that, uh, you know, 
I'm glad that, you know, Aaron Rodgers gets beat up a lot because of his, uh, you know, his COVID stuff and now this, but. And he's just a weird dude. Yeah, There's right. nothing wrong with being a weird dude. No, he's no. an odd duck. Yeah. Good for him. I, yeah, I, I, we need more odd ducks. I agree. Like, oh, he went and did an ayahuasca trip. Like, how can you do that as a quarterback? Like, who cares? Yeah. It's probably super good for him. It probably yeah. put him in a great place. And then they came out. Like, I love the fact that especially ESPN just loves dunking on Aaron Rodgers over the dumbest stuff ever. Yeah. Like, they will take any angle. Like, oh, he didn't even work with those rookie wide receivers. He did. He was gone in the offseason. He didn't put in the time. Like, okay, I agree. That's actually a fair criticism. But then it was uh, Joy Taylor had somebody on, and she's like, yeah, I see these people criticizing the receivers like the first game when Aaron Rodgers threw the ball 60 yards and it went through Christian Watts' hands. Like, it hit him right in the hands, but that's not Watson's fault. He's not used to Aaron Rodgers' throws. Like, he's a professional athlete. It's not his first time trying to catch football. And as you just said, Aaron Rodgers threw the ball 50 yards in the air, hit the dude in the hands, and it just went through and he should have turned around like, Aaron, see what happens when you didn't practice yeah. in the offseason? Yeah, I could see if it was, uh, you know, a six-yard uh, slant in and, you know, Matthew Stafford's chucking his right. rifle. I could see you need some timing. Yes. You know what I mean? You might want to get a gate. Maybe your college quarterback didn't have the arm that Matthew Stafford had, but that's ridiculous. I mean, to your point, I, I think you realize that it's, I mean, whatever. Like I said, it's it's just the lengths that they go to to yeah, criticize they, him are so yeah, comical. They, they definitely dig it up. So, but anyway, we'll we will be surely to keep you all updated when the client list is updated, and I'm sure I'm I hope Jimmy Kimmel's name's on there now, just so that he can go off the air. But anything else on the uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, take here before I we switch into uh, something more catastrophic? No, I love that every time somebody tries to dismiss the the epstein list there's like a hundred people just dunking on them left yeah, and good. right of like hey no we do want to know who's on that list even if you're on it mr kimmel yeah it's i i would bet good money jimmy kimmel's on been jimmy kimmel's been to epstein island i would bet i would <laughs> bet significant money that he's on that list i think i would bet with you I don't. I don't have any. I don't have the. the I see the flight logs that I have seen don't have his name on there. But I've seen many people try to put him on the flight log list. So whether it is or it is, I don't know. Let's talk about some of the. Uh, I don't know. World War Three. Sure. About World War Three. I mean, it's you know, tis the season. So I don't know if you heard this uh, or ba- saw this here over the. Uh, this is uh, an article dated March eleventh. Headline from Al Jazeera, changing global order, China's hand in the Iran-Saudi deal. So China helped broker a deal between the Saudi Arabia government and the Iranian government. And this should be a concern since Saudi is basically our Middle Eastern ally and has been since, you know, I don't know, the, the late 70s. And... The fact that they're working with China in a deal with Iran, another one of our arch enemies, should be concerning to those of us paying attention to the geopolitical world here because if we lose Saudi Arabia and they end up being China's ally, our reserve currency is no longer. I mean, that, that it is. this is a serious attack on the U.S. dollar uh, reigning as the reserve currency because it undermines the petrodollar which is you know been backing our dollar uh you know saudi arabia has basically had made it in the past had made it you know 
required to uh, convert any, you had to purchase oil in dollars. So that always propped up the U.S. dollar because everybody had to buy the dollars to buy the oil and everybody needed oil. So here we are, 2023, and Iran and Saudi Arabia are in a deal. I, I'm guessing Israel's not happy about this either. Uh, they seem like they would be uh, uh, anti this kind of deal. I mean, we've talked about the BRICS a little bit here, um, and they're gaining uh, influence around the world. This seems to add to it. I'm not sure they're going to you know, make it BRICSy with Iran, a little and a little I at the end. But uh, iBricks be like an Apple product. I mean, typically you could you could make it brickus if you added Iran and Saudi Arabia to it. Yeah, you it's could, you could do it. I I do feel like it should be talked about more, and I didn't see it really being talked about at all. No, I I haven't heard much about this either. But this is what's actually let me go one step further with why this is so unexpected. Um, Saudi Arabia and Iran hate each other I, I mean for the most part for the last i don't even know how long like the basis of the u.s ties to saudi arabia was the enemy of my enemy is my friend all right like that was the basis for the relationship between the saudi arabian government and the united states government was all right we know iran is bad with these shia fundamentalist muslims that are running the show there and the Saudi Arabian government, monarchy, and people, for the most part, are all Sunni Muslims, which is very different. And somebody probably should have informed George W. Bush of that prior to 2003, but, you know, time is gone. He now. knew. No, he didn't. You, you've ever read Scott Horton talk about it or listen? Oh, no. Oh, my God. Like, apparently, the this is according to Scott Horton, so if that's wrong, go blame Scott Horton. But... They were trying to brief him on the issue of, hey, there's concern that if you topple Saddam Hussein in Iraq, that then the Shia majority is going to take over the country, and that's going to be very close links to Iran, and that's going to piss off Saudi Arabia because Saddam is a Sunni, Saudis are Sunni, Iran is Shia, yeah. and George Bush's response was, I thought they were all Muslim. Well, I mean, he was only the president. Uh, who could who could be possibly expected to know? Anyways, so in this case, like that is a long-standing adversarial relationship between the Shia Iranians and the Sunni Saudi Arabians. So the idea that they are now working together means our foreign policy is clearly not working very well. Yeah, I don't know what our goals are in the Middle East or Latin America or I mean, Africa. You know, it's hard to make claims by just watching videos, but we saw the, uh, the whatever, the prince of Saudi Arabia almost in back-to-back -back days where he had met Biden and then met Putin, and the you could see that the, I don't know, there was clearly a spark within the uh, relationship between Putin and, uh, uh, what's MBS. his name? Is, uh, yeah, Mohammed bin, bin Salam. Salam yeah. Something like that. But when Biden was there, it was cold. I mean, it looked like, he was like just doing it because he had to do it and whatever. But I mean, it seemed as though there was a noticeable difference in just the camaraderie in the introductions there, which, you know, I took note of at the time. I mean, I guess Saudi doesn't really care too much about, I mean, you would think that if Saudi is abandoning us as an ally and that's not necessarily the case right now, but if they in fact are moving that way, that they have clearly lost faith in the ability of, us to be a valuable ally right i mean they're like okay they're no longer worth our time it it doesn't play out well again if saudi turns and becomes uh more allied with china 
and Russia, and you know we're just left basically holding the bag because it's it's going to end badly if we're not the reserve currency. Uh, it's, listen, we're gonna not be the reserve currency at some point. That's a when, not a no if. doubt. Like the longer you can kick that can down the road, the better it is for more Americans, admittedly. But you can't do it forever because the other countries are just not gonna kowtow for the entire time and let us do whatever we want diplomatically, internationally, and monetarily for the world. It's just not gonna happen. So I, it's always been a very complicated. I don't know the right way, ally. It, it's been a very complicated relationship between the Saudi Arabians and the Americans. For I mean, even back to 9-11 was carried out largely by, by Saudi Arabian fundamentalists. Like, it was not people from Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah, was, I mean, we took care of the Saudi government during that because we shipped out all the uh, Saudi nationals overnight, basically, yeah. as it was happening. They were the only people on the planes. They got out, and it was... and. This is, again, according to Scott Horton, the same episode where he said they wrote a letter and they just said, like, hey, this is why we're doing this. We're doing this because you have troops in the Middle East carrying over, carrying bombing missions out across the Middle East. And this is not your place. So these this sect of Sunni fundamentalist Saudi Arabians. And really, they were the Wahhabis. The Wahhabis is correct. Look at you. And so they literally they said, this is why we're doing it. Get your people out of here. And now we're going to ta- we're going to carry out an attack on you because you keep attacking us. And Dick Cheney, with all of his infinite wisdom and um, power for good, benevolence, if you will, was like, hey, we can't release the contents of this letter to the public because they could be sending secret messages to their sex all across the country. And that could lead to unfettered acts of terrorism. And it wasn't because it was embarrassing and damning that... We did, in fact, have troops stationed in the Middle East bombing countries despite no war being declared, but it was happening. And so we could admit that. So we just covered that up and said, hey, national security, you can't you can't publish that letter. Came out like two decades later. So all of this happened. And, and this is what I mean. It's a very complicated relationship because if you think about it, all right, 17 of the 19 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. The money came from Saudi Arabia. The training came from Saudi Arabia. The money came from there. Why in the world did we not pick a fight with Saudi Arabia. Like their government didn't know it was happening. Please. Like, come on. So we didn't because we thought they were a better ally for us in containing Iran and better source for oil. And they were more willing to deal with us. And they are much more pragmatic businessmen than the fundamentalist Shias of Iran. And son of a gun. We, we just been playing, playing it like both sides against the middle ever since we've, I think we've switched sides in the fight in the middle East twice. Like we don't even know who the hell we're, we're fighting. Um, we've been on both against. sides a couple of times. Yeah. Like we just go back and forth depending on the day. Obama switched from, all right, well, we're going to fight the Shias to fighting the Sunni or no, because Osama bin Laden was a Sunni. So we were fighting the Sunnis and then we're like, well, oh, we don't want to do that. We're going to fight the Shias now. And now we're going to go to Syria and we're going to switch again. And it was just a, Holy crap. And this is, I guess, my roundabout way of saying this. How do you blame them? How do you blame Iran and Saudi Arabia for not taking us seriously, for not viewing us as this benevolent force for good in the world? How do you, how do you blame them? If you And I, I'm not talking about the average person on the street. I'm talking about our actual policy in the Middle East, the millions of people our government has killed in the Middle East over the last 20 years. How do you expect them to view us as some force for good? Would you? you live there doesn't mean that mbs is a good person it doesn't mean the people the shah of iran is good they're not they're horrible dictators that carry out atrocities on an almost weekly basis 
But that just because they're bad and we're a little better doesn't mean that to the average person living in those countries, we are seen as some benevolent bringer of democracy. It, yeah. it, it's just not. It's, not. it's not how it is. Yeah, I mean, listen, as you pointed out, millions of people have been killed over there because of our bombs, right? So, like, they, they know where they're coming from. They can assign blame, and it's justified. You can't argue with them saying, like, hey— my daughter, my mother, my whatever was killed by this, and now I'm radicalized to fight what this who killed my family. So, Even if you're not radicalized, you just don't want us there. Sure, like just right. stop. Because here's the problem: literally, people people forget about this. When Barack Obama, the great recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, was the president, we ran out of bombs. He dropped so many drone bombs across the Middle East, ordered them to be dropped, I'm sorry, that we literally had to halt and catch up on production. Think about how many bombs that is. I can't even wrap my brain around it. And, and then it happened. And then, I uh, believe it was still when Trump was in office, they carried out a drone attack in Afghanistan. Obama, is this the Hospital Without Borders? No, no, that was bad, too. Oh, okay. this, yeah, I think it was where they killed the seven people. Oh, no, no, that was... That, that was Trump, I think. The Hospital Without Borders was Obama. Yeah. But under Trump, it was they killed seven aid workers and lied about it, said successful mission, took out a terrorist cell, but there's people on the ground that had pictures and came back and were like, you dirty liars. And so they denied, they denied, and then obviously the evidence became so overwhelming that they were like, all right, well, we're going to launch an investigation. And the conclusion of the investigation was nobody did anything wrong. Sometimes shit happens. Sorry. Nobody did anything wrong. Nobody got fired. Nobody lost their job. Nobody got fined. Nobody got in prison. They murdered seven innocent people. And there was zero consequences for any person that actually carried out that bombing. And so now, again, the Hospital Without Borders incident was horrific. Oh, under Obama, we bombed a wedding with like 200 people to get one bad guy. He... he killed a 16 year old son of a terrorist yeah like without an american citizen yeah like we did things that are unspeakable and that most people don't know and most people don't want to know because that would have that would result in you having to have an uncomfortable conversation about what is our role and what are we doing so when you look at all of these things again my central point is how how much blame do you want me to put on iran and saudi arabia for doing this as the governments of like do you, would you trust the United States government to act in your best interest if you were if you had a deal? I mean, we had a deal with Iran on the nuclear deal. That got undone. We've had trade deals and everything else with Saudi Arabia forever. But they're not idiots. As much as they're horrible human beings, they're not dumb. They know what we do. We're not, we're not there to make sure they're good. We will do whatever suits our national security best interest that month. Whatever we feel, whatever the person running CIA feels is the best interest for the long-term national security of America, that's what we'll do. And to the hell with everybody else. Yeah. Which, okay, fine. But if that's the attitude, how mad do you want me to be about this? Like, yeah, of course they're going to do this. It's not going to stop either. There's a reason India is still buying Russian energy. There's a reason it's happening despite America saying nobody should do it. All right, like all of this stuff just, it makes sense if you don't view it from a bald eagle flag waving, don't tread on me, we're the greatest ever and we're the bringers of peace and democracy to the world. If you have a little more pragmatic and nuanced view of, yeah, I would imagine if you just said, we're gonna, we're just gonna do whatever the Americans want, the people in your country aren't gonna like that very much either. Yeah. Like I said, this, I, I feel like is, I mean, we've touched on a couple things that have, 
indicated that the status of the the U.S. dollar is in jeopardy, and it seems like it is precariously perched as the reserve currency at the moment here. So what you're basically saying is right now would be a really good time to not do anything crazy about printing more currency or messing with banks or messing with interest rates too significantly. It'd be a really good time to maybe show some monetary conservatism and a little bit of pragmatism, right? Uh, yes. All right. That's not, what, that's not what we're getting. Is that not, no? That's, no. That's not what we're doing? So we've decided to go the exact opposite. Ah, obviously. I mean, I don't know if your concerns were quelled a little bit this morning at 9 a.m. when the president came out and was like, the banks are fine. Well, if Joe Biden says so. He must believe it. Anyway, let's switch gears a tad. This is probably threatening the reserve currency as well. That's why I only say a tad. But Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and seized by the FDIC. Um, this happened on Friday, I believe. Uh, this was on the heels of Wednesday when Silvergate Bank closed. And then over the weekend, we had Signature Bank closed. Those are three, I don't know if you know this, but those are the three, maybe the only banks that uh, crypto companies use were those three banks. They're all closed. So there is this, I don't know what the hashtag is, but there is a crypto is bankless uh, thing out there. But I posted this yesterday. That's the whole point of Bitcoin is to not be part of a banking structure. So all these other crypto companies, and I've, we've said this for a while, and even though I've owned some of these crypto uh, other coins, I always treated them separately than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is its own entity. Uh, even your boy Gary Gensler says the only uh, crypto that's not a security is Bitcoin. So that's concerning for people who are uh, in the Ethereum uh, world yeah. um, and all other worlds. But... That's just a side thing. So this bank was the, I believe I heard the 12th largest bank in the U.S. This is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history uh, outside of Washington Mutual in 2008 or whenever it was. Uh, uh, J.P. Morgan ended up buying Washington Mutual. Uh, Washington Mutual. It turns out, it appears, I saw a headline today that uh, HSBC looks like they are purchasing Silicon Valley Bank. We'll see how that all unfolds. Uh, if you listen to Jim Cramer a month ago on February 8th, Mr. Husong, your boy, Jim Cramer. I always listen to Jim Cramer. He told you that uh, Silicon Valley Bank was a buy at $320 on February 8th. Today, we are at $106. That's good investing right there. (laughs) I'm guessing it's going to zero. Um, Oof. So the Federal Reserve uh, came out yesterday and made sure that there was not going to be uh, contagion, as they like to call it. Sure. The kids like to call it these days when the uh, people are taking the money out of all these banks. Uh, and I should bring up that Silicon Valley Bank, two things. Um, the same day Silvergate closed, Peter Thiel withdrew something like, I don't know, $240 million from Silicon Valley Bank. Some ridiculous number, right? Because he was not getting answers that he was asking apparently this is how you know this is my uh hot take of or the my interpretation of the events that i saw was that he was not getting communication from the people at silicon valley bank and therefore took out all his money and told all his friends to take out all their money out of this bank and that they could not they didn't have enough money to pay depositors or cover depositors and therefore the fdic came in took over the bank um the federal reserve 
yesterday in a joint statement with the Treasury and the SEC basically came out and said, we're going to backstop all depositors. So Silicon Valley Bank is a commercial bank. So it's not like me or you could just walk up there and be like, hey, here's my paycheck. Can I open an account? Not going to happen. Something like the neighborhood of 97% of all accounts in Silicon Valley Bank were greater than $250,000 and therefore uninsured by the FDIC. And so they were all at risk of losing their deposits. So the Federal Reserve came in and they did this for Signature Bank as well. Basically said, anybody who wants, any depositor who wants their money can get their money out today. So right now I'm assuming that these People who were had their money trapped in over the weekend were able to uh, to withdraw money. Now, some of this was, you know, not the fault of. I mean, you can lay some blame on these companies for picking this bank. Apparently, was um, I've heard some crazy stories about the CEO and how terrible he is. I mean, he just he just bought a bunch of mortgage mortgage backed securities. So recently, yeah, that was one of the biggest problems. Is it wasn't even recently the the problem. The ones he bought recently aren't the problem. The ones that it was the head of risk management. Some I don't know what her name is anymore. Uh, so basically if if, taking a step back, when you put money into a bank, the money doesn't stay in a bank. All right. For anybody who doesn't know that it's not like they have a vault. They do have a vault, but it's nowhere near enough to cover. They lend out 90% of that money. 90% of it. As soon as you deposit in the bank, they take it and loan it out somewhere else. So the idea being, I'm going to pay you 1% for, you know, you keep letting me access your money and then I'm going to loan it to a startup in Silicon Valley for, 10%, and that's my spread, and that's what I'm going to make, which is fine until I come back and say, hey, give me my money. And they say, okay, here you go. But then if you go take your money, and he goes takes his, and she takes hers, and everybody goes, they go, whoa, 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 we don't have that much money in here. And then people go, you what? Give me my money. Give me my money. Give me my money. And now if nobody took the money, it wouldn't be a problem. But you don't want to be the last one with your money in the bank because then you're never getting it because it's not there. So there's a personal incentive to not be the last one there as much as we want to talk about the greater good and the common good and we're all in this together no at that moment in time you're like no i need my money sorry peter Thiel, same thing like look you can't answer my questions something is wrong i want my money i'm out everybody else you should do the same thing so the problem with this particular one was um i believe it was in 2021 they ended up having some insane amount of new money coming in now silicon valley's whole thing this bank their whole their whole pitch is we invest in silicon valley startups and especially heavily esg and dei yeah it's not die it's dei um framework framework yeah i mean they were definitely all in on that yeah they're 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 almost all tech and health startups correct and so they're, they're going all in on these, what are ultimately risky ventures, but you only need one or two to pay off for you to really get all your money back, and that's fine. But they had so much money come in through new deposits at this point, and some of this is just a natural fallout of all the omnibus spending with COVID and everything else. All the money came out, investments went up, some tech companies did really great in the, in the face of covid shutdowns as they would so they had all this money and all this money came into this bank and so it's it was something insane like it two or three times what they had they got new in so when that happens you've got to do something with it because there's not enough projects presenting themselves for you to invest your 90 percent so instead this brilliant head of risk management recommended to the ceo well we'll just go buy mortgage-backed securities we'll go buy some u.s treasuries and Apparently, nobody ever explained what interest rate risk is to these people to say, okay, that's fine. But if interest rates go up, you might have a problem. And they went, ah, it's fine. It's the government. So they went and bought 10-year treasuries 
at 1.4%. Now, for those of you who've been under a rock for the last year, interest rates have gone up as courtesy of the Federal Reserve Monetary Policy. So now a 10-year treasury is paying closer to, I don't know, 4.6 to 5% per year instead of the $70 billion of 1.5% interest rates these bonds have. Now, same point I made before. As long as you don't pull the money out, it's fine. Because your $70 billion will absolutely continue to earn that 1.5% every single year moving forward. Now, that's shit and it's awful interest, but at least you're not losing money. But like you said, they loan out 90%. So now when Peter Thiel and these other guys come in and say, hey, give me my money. They have to give it to you, but guess what they have to do? Because they don't have a vault where they can just go back and take these giant stacks of hundreds of billions. Here you go, Peter. No, what they've got to do is they've got to sell their investments. So they're not going to sell and cash in the loans that are out to the business startups because they would lose pretty much everything. So instead, they're going to sell their U.S. treasuries. Now, the problem is if I'm in the market to buy a U.S. treasury, right? That's my thing. I could buy it from you and earn a 1.5% interest rate, or I could just go buy it in the market overall and get four and a half. Where am I buying from? Four and a half. I might buy from you, but not for the money you paid for it. There's a there's a strict calculation on how this works, and it's it's very simple math. The interest rates and duration have gone up by this much. Therefore, your bond is only worth this now because I want to net out the same. And if I can go basically take a risk-free asset, which technically U.S. Treasuries count as, and get four and a half, but I, you want me to buy it and only get one and a half. Okay, no problem. You got eight years left on that. So let's do that math real quick out. 1.5 times 8% on a billion dollars uh, versus if I took the same billion and got 4.5. So therefore, we're going to deduct that. Your billion dollar fund bond is actually worth about uh, 500 million. So you go, ah, I got to get the money out. So you sell for 500 million. Now, what you really just did is lost $500 million every time you did that. And it's that math's not that far off. I don't know what the exact calculation comes out. But because we raised interest rates so quickly that now these bonds are basically worthless. Nobody's buying anywhere close to par value for these. So the bank had to sell them. They sold them at a massive loss. So their big influx of capital that went into this most secure investment known to man, now because of this liquidity run, they got to sell. And they're getting half. So now what? So let's. This is, I think, a, a good time to bring up two uh, uh, points. The CEO, Greg Baker, mm. who I've heard described as a complete moron. So I don't know Mr. Baker. I'm not going to say that. But some people who seem to know really think this dude's in over his head. But he was also a Class A director of the San Francisco Fed as of Friday. <laughs> so it's not like they didn't know. <laughs> No, they all, they, they had to know, right? This, there was no way on Wednesday that Teal pulls out all of his money and this guy's not being like, oh shit, like this, something's going down. So, I mean, he gets removed from the Fed position. Didn't he cash out stock options? Yeah, first? in February. Uh, so four officers cashed out between like, uh, I don't know, s some noticeable percentage of their stock all cashed out four different officers in, in February. So a month before the, the, the collapse. So. They had to know mm -hmm. that this was imminent. Even before Teal pulled out his money, they had to know something was going on, right? So I'm guessing Teal was asking questions and then was like, all right, well, I I'm listen, I'm guessing Peter Teal knew when he was pulling his money out, this thing was this thing is over. He's Peter so, Teal. Yeah. Right. So he knows. So he's not a moron. <laughs> no. Um, 
So that done. And the chief administrative officer, Joseph Gentili or Gentile, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Whatever. Was the CFO of Lehman when it collapsed. <laughs> like, could you pick? Yes. Could you, like, this thing, if, if, if anybody would have, uh, listen, so we talked about the Fed backing uh, up the depositors. They're not backing up the shareholders, thankfully. Not yet. Not yet. It, if you were investing in this company and th- they're seemingly in hindsight, tons of red flags that should have been out there. And I don't feel bad for the people who invested in this company, in this bank, because it was a shitty bank. And so they don't deserve to make money on that. Um, yeah, I got my notes here. CEO, they sold on two twenty. The CEO sold on two twenty seven. That was two uh, weeks ago. Between twenty five and thirty percent, they sold at around two hundred fifty dollars a share. So, and then Jim Cramer said it's a buy. Yeah, well, he said it before that actually. Then they started selling. They know they, they they pay attention to the Jim the inverse Jim Cramer as well. But so they tried to raise money on March second. They tried to raise like three point seven billion dollars unsuccessfully, and then all hell broke loose. Um, I don't know. They took out, I, I think Teal and his buddies took out something like $42 billion over two over 48 hours. The hole supposedly is about $50 billion in this bank, which is seemingly a, I say $50 billion is a low number, but a serviceable amount of money that seemingly shouldn't have shut down a bank of this size, $50 billion. Right. Um, I, it's... The, the Fed announcement basically stopped the bank run of people pulling their money out, but all the bank stocks are getting killed today. Um, you know, not a, not just uh, Silicon Valley Bank, but uh, First Republic is down something like 60-something percent. I saw PNC was down. Key Bank was down 30-plus percent. So all the banks are taking a massive, massive hit today. Um, I, I found it, some of the, you know, I so some of the things that, these companies who were banking with Silicon, I say were out of their control, even though obviously they put their money in there and they knew it wasn't insured more than the 250,000. So if they had more than there, they should have known that it was uninsured funds, but you kind of hope that you're banking with the 12th largest bank that you don't really need that insurance. But like Roku, like they had a ton of money in, in Silicon Valley, Etsy, like people weren't being able to po- process payments on Etsy because they didn't have money. There was companies who couldn't make payroll because they had their money in, in Silicon Valley. So I feel bad for those companies because I say no fault of their own, but maybe somebody at the upper should have been, you know, spreading out their money a little bit better than having it all invested into one bank. But it turns out this bank was recruiting those kind of companies, right? So they wanted, they, they were looking to give out money to these things. That's what they did. That's what that, that was their business model. Let's find these startups and, and fund them. Uh, I don't know. And I think we mentioned that I saw today and I haven't seen any details yet that HSBC seemingly is going to buy Silicon Valley Bank. So that should, you know, at least absorb some of the, the, the contagion, I guess. Do you think this is, uh, I mean, other than, I'm sure this is going to be a crazy week. Um, I don't know. Do you see that? I mean, crypto flew on this. Like Bitcoin went from like 19,000 to 24,000 almost yes. in like 12 hours. 23.9 right now. So, and it almost got to 25. So it's, it's dipped a little bit since that, that high mark there. But, you know, crypto was kind of getting blamed for this because of the Silvergate and the Silicon Valley and the signatures ties and being the three maybe only uh, uh, Bitcoin banks or, or crypto banks, sorry. 
you know, I don't, it doesn't look like specifically Bitcoin and some of these other ones are going up too, that that's the case. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is, you know, has unaffiliated any of these things. They, they, they're, they're not even a, a, nobody knows, nobody's running Bitcoin. It's just out there as a program. So I don't know. I, I feel like this is the beginning of a, of a meltdown. I think they're obviously gonna, you know, slow roll the, the ripping of the bandaid here. The fed is, that is, and you know, I, I, they have a rate hike tomorrow. Do you think it's going uh, full 50, uh, 50 basis points there? I heard they were maybe going to do a quarter. Uh, some people have said they think they're going to pause and do zero. We're going to know tomorrow morning. I think they still do 50. I think they still do 50 as well. I think he doesn't want to cause anybody to be alarmed, and if he doesn't do that, then he's going to have to acknowledge that there's real problems. Right. Jerome Powell doesn't want to acknowledge Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that he's going to move forward with his plan, regardless of this and there's going to be other ca- I mean so and maybe you know more of this about this too but I you know I heard people talking about it's like it's not just banks who have all these government you know treasuries and whatnot that their interest rates go like PepsiCo and some of these major corporations so in 2008 my understanding is that the after the collapse the government made certain entities required to basically have you know low risk assets right so these banks had to buy they could only buy certain things and U.S. Treasuries were clear at the top of the list. Smart for the government to require uh, them to buy my own products. But so, you know, there's that. I mean, there's there's clearly force of some note on these institutions to buy, you know, U.S. debt. And obviously raising of the rates is wasn't part of that, you know, wasn't factored in back when they were doing this. And I don't know. It seems that they, you know, they put, they put down the fire a little bit, but I don't think this is like going away. I think that there's, the, 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 I don't even know how to predict the end of the week. Uh, I mean, I could see Bitcoin back at 20,000 tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I could see some of these banks closing just because like, you know, I, I'm guessing some of these banks, you know, there's been a, what, something like, I see somebody talking about the discount window, basically that people, in the, you know, the discount window, the banks who use the Fed's discount window, basically, which is, to kind of fill gaps in their uh, their uh, uh, spreadsheet or their their balance sheets there to kind of like, hey we got too many withdrawals we need kind of it's usually a temporary fix, but people have been pounding that and it's anonymous for eighteen months. So any of these banks who have been using the uh, discount window with the Fed, we won't know who they are for another like twelve months. I got to assume that some of these banks that are we're talking about today have been using this window to try to fill in uh, holes that they've had in their balance sheets already. And when that information does come out, we're going to know who the banks that were, you know, teetering. And I'm guessing after we get that information, they're going to teeter away because people are going to be like, oh, no, this bank is not a bank that I thought it was. And they've been borrowing money and I'm going to take my money out. So I think we're going to have to wait and see what happens with the interest rate tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We're not going to know some of these banks who were, who were, you know, if it was more than just Silicon uh, Valley, maybe more than uh, uh, Silvergate and more than Signature, who have been using these discount window for the last six months. Like we're going to find out who all those are. So even though it may seem like they have, uh, you know, steadied the ship and things will kind of get back together, we haven't really talked about stable coins yet. Like the the tether is is, I, I feel like tether's going down like to to zero, um, which would be terrible for the crypto market 
in in that moment. I mean, like I said, I think Bitcoin would be the only one who might recover from that. There's so many other moving parts that have yet to resolve themselves that I can't see this being, you know, this fire being put out because Joe Biden and the Fed decided they were going to make depositors whole. It may seem like a temporary fix and people can exhale and be like, oh, good, I got my money. But it's not like they fixed any of the problems. They just basically fixed this symptom. It's to put a Band-Aid on it. Yeah, it's it's seemingly going to end really, really badly. Um, this, and this is just really, almost really just the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem that we've hit as a country, as a culture, is that we no longer, we no longer punish. Maybe that's not the right word. Economically speaking. We don't let bad decisions get punished anymore. No. And that's not capitalism. Capitalism means if you do good, you get rich. If you do bad, you go broke. That's it. Period. In a sense, very simple system. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be heartless and, like, throw people out on the streets or anything. Like, there's there's ways. I've read something on there that says, if they don't do this, people will starve. Yeah. yeah. Andrew Yang was all about this for the last, all weekend was basically being like, you know, you guys don't know what's going to happen. Listen, Andrew Yang, anybody else? When is the last time anybody in America died of starvation? Well. No, seriously. It's literally been about 100 years since anybody in America has died of starvation outside of a mental illness or a drunk problem. Like where or it was. It shitty, wasn't that it wasn't. There's some shitty parents out there, but yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, there's shitty parents, but even then, you get malnutrition. But the idea of dying of starvation, it just, it, it like does not happen. It's, it's not something that is frequent in society no not not in this country no. because we have too much infrastructure we have food banks we have churches we have just right. other people that will help like that it is the idea that somebody's going to literally starve to death if if they just followed the rules that they set and said all right you get 250 grand that's all that's insured after that banks got to go bankrupt if maybe jb morgan buys it maybe somebody else buys it and then you can see what's what you're on the hook for but we're not going to step in and have more. And I, I get what they said, that they're going to have the banks cover all the costs and it's going to be more insurance. It's just another bubble. It's all, it's all this government knows how to do. It's all the Fed knows how to do. Is The idea that a corporation is going to eat a cost and not pass it on to consumers is, is asinine. They're, the corporation doesn't exist. The corporation exists only as far as a legal entity and a name. Other than that, it's not like the the corporation's going to change. It's it's going to pass those costs along to the individual consumer. Maybe you saw this too. So, at this new the uh, what do they call it the uh, something bank fund program, the term bank fund program. This is the new program that the Fed released. When these banks use this program, they can use assets as collateral, including shitty products like mortgage-backed securities and whatever at par so they can borrow against the full value of these regardless of where they are wherever they are currently they can use those as collateral it's basically a creative quantitative easing right so like they they literally can just they can do that forever they can i mean if the federal federal reserve is going to take on all these shitty assets from all these banks as collateral they're literally just monetizing the debt again. They're, they're, it's a, it's just a, a Federal Reserve trick, really, to keep this thing propped up. So it's going to end badly. It's, you know, I'm not, you know, this this whole program is information, not financial advice. But, like, I would be very, I would be on alert 
with how much money I had in any bank. If I had sub- substantial amounts of money, I'd be like, okay, I need to kind of figure out what I'm doing here. So, yeah, um, I agree with that. It's, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think anybody thinks it's over because, you know, the, uh, the president and the uh, fed came out with their uh, little program here, but, um, it's really just delaying the inevitable, I think at this point. So another thing, a, a, a huge U S financial collapse would again, put the, U.S. dollar in complete jeopardy of losing its reserve status. So, and, you know, and all these uh, financial crashes, we always end up fixing it with a war. So we got the uh, World War III prospect just piggybacking right on top of a financial collapse. Pretty much that's the only way we ever get out of these financial collapses, uh, start a war. I believe you were the one who told me that every country that has ever threatened to go off of the petrodollar we have invaded... Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that, you know, you can, you can pick out some leaders and they all, anytime you threaten the U S I mean, listen, I, I think the Saudi Arabia, China deal is kind of like a poke in the eye of the U S government too. Like they must realize that the rest, I mean, they probably realized this long before we're talking about it now. They've probably known it for years that people are trying to get out of this system. The uh, countries I'm talking about are trying to get out of this U S dominated financial system and they're just going to chip away at it. And eventually they will succeed. And the U S dollar will no longer be the reserve currency. We will go through, listen, so I don't think that, you know, if we compare just eras, so the, the stock market crash of 19, whatever it was 29, right? Like we're in a completely different world. Our civilization's different. Our cities are different. Our culture's different. We're in a completely different place you would think we'd be able to pick up the pieces quicker than we would in, ni- in 1929 when we had the collapse. It might look different, but there's so much wealth through resources and infrastructure, whatever that uh, you kind of laid out already in place here that I don't, even though I think there will be hurt and pain, I'm not sure that it would be like a, you know, like a 10 year depression where we're kind of like just down and out. And, you know, the, I think that, combined with a war could put us in a real bad spot. Um, and you know, nobody wants to see that, but I almost think it's inevitable, unfortunately. And I'm not sure how a war would work right now, because I think our generation is very jaded after like everything came out with the lies that were told about Afghanistan, about Iraq, about Vietnam that we now know about, like how, how much we would get annihilated to be, I mean, we would end up launching, our nuclear assault because I think that these other countries are they're probably not on par with our military capabilities they're not you know whatever but they don't have to be either I mean if the right cyber guy or girl gets into I don't know NORAD and he's like yeah you're not dropping any bombs and they just turn it off yeah whatever. I mean you talk about unrestricted warfare at this point yeah. if that were to happen and, and that's my I guess my fear is I don't we the recruiting's way down for the military. We're not. We're nowhere near at full force, and we're not going to be realistically. So you could do a draft, but listen, I got young kids. I can promise you, if my son's eighteen and you do a draft, he's not fighting. I'm out. I'll see you. I I I got no qualms about that whatsoever. Call me whatever name you want. Yeah. You lied me into one more. You're not lying my kids into one. Sorry. Yeah. No. And I, there's no reason for me to trust you. No. Zero. None whatsoever. You could come in with like the most incontrovertible proof of video, and I would still be like, nah. Remember when you guys said you had video of the Nord Stream pipeline being blown up by Russians, you dirty liars? 
Then, did you see the news thing in the New York Times? I'm sorry to jump on this, but World War III is on the horizon, so what the hell? Let's just cover it now. And the New York Times released something that said, well, actually, we think it was just a Ukrainian pro-democracy yeah. front. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the yacht that they stole to do it, and you're like, it's like 600 pounds of explosions. Of explosives. Yeah. It's, it wouldn't have fit on this no. boat. Like, yeah. oh. I've seen a couple of more of the Seymour Hersh interviews. He's kind of made the rounds for some of the uh, anti- so funny. Yeah, so he, you know, it's... Anybody who doesn't think it was the U.S. is literally just head in the sand at this point. So, I don't know. Um, we covered a whole hell of a lot. Uh, I mean, it's hard to uh, downshift from World War Three a little bit, but we here we are. We should go into more on this Nord Stream thing next week, though. Cause yeah. Is- well, I mean, listen, I didn't have enough time to cover all the things that we had missed because, like, I didn't I – that and the, the, the uh, January 6th footage that came out. Like, I, we could have talked about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we can do that. We can we can kind of circle back on some of this stuff as we uh, uh, kind of fill in the blanks. And just so we're clear, because we're not going to talk about this anymore today, I'm not telling you it was definitively America that did this. I'm not telling you that Seymour Hersh's article is entirely accurate. I don't know. But, man, you got to do some mental gymnastics to get anywhere. If you're going to follow Occam's razor, like, uh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, like I said, U.S. says they think it was Ukraine, and Ukraine's like, we didn't do anything. It wasn't us. What are you talking about? Yeah. So How about you, Ukraine's got to be able to, like, how? How do you think you think we did this and didn't tell you? Like, yeah. you, we're in this because Boris Johnson came over and was like, do not sue for peace. And Zelensky's like, cool, man. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, we can jump into that next week, too. Oh. So, all right. Anything else you would like to uh, cherry on top of this episode with? It's just good to be back. Yeah. That is good to be back, other than the fucking snow. Yeah. But I could deal with at that. At least we're inside. All right, folks. On that note, Hopefully you guys will all share and uh, like the video, share it with your friends, share it with your family, get the show out there, promote the show, help us out. Um, hopefully you guys, uh, you can give me some feedback on the new graphics. I probably should change that, t- that font and that bottom scroll there, but uh, maybe next week. So on that note, wait, did you want to leave the folks with anything enlightening and good news before we leave or no? Uh, I got nothing. It's a bad time of day. So we'll see you all again. Uh, Next Monday, 12 p.m. for uh, episode 127 of Sports, Clicks, and Politics.